I think that at the end of the day, we're going to come out stronger, healthier, more creative, and ultimately more viable going forward because of what we're having to go do right now to figure out how to really provide the best transportation experience to our customers. Well, good afternoon, everyone, again. Excited to be with you today at Medaxo's Transit Unplugged CEO Live Roundtable. You don't get to see this very often where we bring together some of the finest CEOs in the public transit industry. You kind of get behind the scenes, ask them about their lives, their careers, what their current challenges are, and what they see for the future of public transportation. Are you ready to dig in? Let's make this happen. I'm super excited to have today one of the top CEOs in America with us today. Great to have Dwayne Carter, my good friend here, who is... Um, the president and CEO of the Chicago Transit Authority. You might remember, I love the band Chicago. They used to be called Chicago Transit Authority. That was their first name, CTA. Welcome and thank you for being with us today, Dorval. Thank you, Paul. Good to be here. Yeah, Dorval is also uh, this year the chairman of APTA. APTA is like, I, it's basically the UITP for America. And uh, so they represent all the major transit systems. And I'm also very excited to have my good friend, Paul Scatellis here. Paul is the CEO of APTA. Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Paul. Good to be with you. Yep. And Jeremy Yap is here. Jeremy heads up one of the world's signature public transportation systems, the Singapore LTA Land Transport Authority. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Paul. It's a blast to be here. Thanks. Excellent. And also, we got to go to the land down under. So we're excited to have with us Carla Purcell, the CEO of Yara Trams in Australia. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. So we're just going to go down to start with, we have about six or seven questions today. We'll be about 45 minutes to kind of give you how long you're going to need to stand there. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, but we're going to go down and talk to them about, the, as I mentioned, a little about themselves we'll get started off with. So, Dorval, you've had an amazing career. Would you mind sharing a little bit of that with us about how you sure. got to where you're at and what you do there in Chicago? Sure. I, um, I have about over 30 years in the industry. I uh, started my career at the Chicago Transit Authority, but I sort of split my time between the federal government and, and CTA. And uh, in my role as CTA, I've, I've served in a number of positions, including the uh, general counsel position and the um, my executive vice president and chief administrative officer. But I also have a, a past with the federal government where I've served as both a career employee where I was the regional counsel and assistant chief counsel. Uh, and then um, under the Obama administration, uh, I served as the chief counsel and then ultimately became the chief of staff, Secretary Anthony Fox. I left that job to come back to CTA to become the president of the Chicago Transit Authority, which is the second largest transit system in the country. Well, for those of you who are not familiar with it, pre-pandemic, we carried about 1.5 million people a day. I've been doing that job now for eight years and uh, have enjoyed every, every minute of it. He's a real mover and shaker in the Chicago area. You can see I reached back for a blast from the past and got his photo when he was at FTA with the American flag. I love that picture, Darwin. A lot less gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, tell us about yourself a little bit of what you do at APTA. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here, and thank you for convening this uh, this get-together. Well, first, you talk to a lot of people. You ask the question, well, how did you get into the public transport business, right? And most people respond, well, I just kind of fell into it. This was an opportunity. I can tell you that I first got charged up about what we do, public transportation, when I was a great schooler riding my first train in Philadelphia and going to the New York World's Fair. And I knew then that somehow the future was about public transportation. And so here I am all these many years later. I've been privileged to serve in both the public and private sectors uh, many, many years on the public side, leading to transit organizations in the U.S. And then the last, uh, gosh, 15 years after that, uh, led the rail and transit business for an international engineering company and now 
very privileged to be the after president and CEO. I'm in my sixth year. I love what we do. Even with all of its challenges, it's great fun. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I can't tell you what a great leader Paul is for our industry in the United States. He is out front leading, making sure we're engaged with Congress, making sure that they are taking care of public transit, understand our role. He's really helped, I think, change the dynamic of public transportation in the United States. It's no longer now just about getting from A to B and commuters going into the big, tall buildings downtown. Paul has helped lead a real transformation of our industry to focus now on things like equity and inclusion and sustainability and making our, our public officials understand the role that public transit can achieve in really overall societal gains. So thank you for the work you're doing helping lead our industry, a great leader for us, as is my good friend Jeremy Yap, who is focused on what we just talked about, equity and inclusion. You wouldn't believe the amazing infrastructure improvements they've made on their system to make it more inclusive. They have a, well, I'll let you talk a little about it, but introduce yourself. I'm just so impressed with their system. Thank you for those kind words, Paul. Well, welcome, everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Jeremy from uh, the Land Transport Authority. I oversee public transport over there, policy and planning, and I, I advocate for uh, sustainable active mobility roles uh, in LTA. So uh, we are a statutory board about 6,000 uh, in 6,005 in strength, and uh, we carry about 6 million journeys a day on our public transport. That's good. We're going to have you dig into that a little bit in a few minutes. All right, Carla, tell us about yourself a little bit, your new role, and what you do at Yara Trams. Yeah, sure. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carla Purcell, the CEO of Yara Trams. And prior to this, I was the Chief Operating Officer for the past five years. And I must say, unlike the others on the panel, I don't have 30 years of experience in public transport, but uh, I think what I do bring is the fact that I, prior to this, had a life in aviation and really the fundamentals are the same, which is safety, operational performance and customer experience. And for me, I very much believe in um, public transport and I think it's fundamental. It's a great leveller and incredibly important for people to have and for all communities to have. Um, but I think in terms of operating our safety, our operational excellence and having customers at the heart, it's really what I'm really passionate about. That's awesome. So I wanted to start off with something a little bit different. Uh, some members of our panel recently went on a tour, and I'm going to have Paul kind of kick it off and tell us about the tour you went on just before getting here and what you learned about public transportation here in this area of Spain. Sure. Well, thank you very much, Paul. First of all, Dorval and I were very privileged to lead a delegation of about 35 of our transit industry professionals, both public sector agency CEOs, transit board members, and business members. And we were privileged to go to Madrid, began there, toured the system, met with the local officials there, went on to Valencia by high-speed rail, of course, uh, met with the officials there, and then went on here to Barcelona. So in each instance, I think we came away extraordinarily impressed. Now, one of the reasons we do this at APTA is bring together our members so they can experience what's going on in other parts of the world, because we do have a fundamental belief that while we think we do many things very, very well, other parts of the world, including our friend here, uh, do some great things that we can learn from. And certainly we came away from our experience here in Spain much the same. Uh, a lot of uh, great uh, accomplishments that are being made uh, in electrification, uh, in addressing issues of climate, uh, expanding their system. Which, you know, I was here some 20 years ago and the high-speed system, except for the connection from Madrid to Sevilla, didn't exist. The Metro Madrid was very, very small. So this is how we learn. And, and this has been a whole week of exciting opportunities for us. You know, and if I could just make one other point, which I was extremely impressed about, which is 
the priority that the country places on public transportation. Uh, it is right up there with health care and education as a top priority of this country. Eh? You can see it both in the commitments that are being made to their public transportation systems and I think even more importantly in the usage that we saw in all these systems that we went around, around uh, the country. So it, it, is, it is a model that we all should be trying to aspire to. It's excellent. So hopefully this is the last time I'll have to ask this question because we're trying to get past the pandemic and trying not to refer back to pre-pandemic ridership, et cetera. But so we'll ask it one more time. Jeremy, tell us about what challenges you're facing in Singapore at the LTA when it comes to post-pandemic transportation. Yeah, I think it's not unique to Singapore, but uh, I think most of us uh, that came out of the pandemic, we it was a revenue crisis. And unless uh, ridership recovers to the pre-pandemic level, you're going to have a gap. Yeah, so the challenges are to how do you, how do you make up that fare box gap uh, through developing other streams of revenue, uh, being creative, and also to attract uh, commuters back to the system. Right? Some have left because they felt it wasn't safe, but now the message is, uh, you know, please come back to the system. And the challenge is really to make it socially inclusive as well. It's something we've spoken about in the past. Yeah, so this is our concentration to make sure that, uh, you know, the quality is up, as uh, you were sharing, uh, to make sure that because of that quality, that's a pull factor and that people are attracted to, to take public transport one again. Uh, we have an ambitious target uh, for nine in 10 of our journeys to be done on what we call walk cycle ride meaning walking, uh, biking, and also riding public transport. Uh, we want to achieve this in 2040, and we are way making good progress on that. They say that Barcelona is one of the densest cities in the world, but so is Singapore, right? Absolutely. So we, we are very dense. We have 7,500 inhabitants per square meter. Uh, so it's, uh, it's really a challenge to carry 6 million journeys on our public transport. Uh, but it's a delight. You know, if you work in the public sector like I, like, like I do, uh, it, it is, uh, it's a passion to see uh, moving people uh, that need to have opportunities in life, uh, you know, to, to their dreams, uh, to their vocations, uh, even to work uh, and play, right? So people need to be moved in different areas and there's nothing uh, greater than uh, moving them on public transport. All right, so talk to us about what Yara Trams actually does, the services you provide, and then what challenges are you facing right now? Great. So for those who don't know, Yara Trams, we are the largest tram operator in the world. Uh, we operate nearly 5,000 services a day, 500 trams, 27 line, 25 lines, 23 go through the city, and nearly 2,200 employees. So quite a large operation and a huge amount of complexity. And for us, really, at the moment, whilst similar to everyone else, uh, we are seeing patronage of approximately 70% of pre-COVID levels. However, really, our biggest challenge at the moment, or emerging challenge, I should say, is the huge investment that has been had in infrastructure in, in Victoria, which is a great, a great thing. However, what that is doing, or what we expect it to do, is change the way that people use the city and use public transport. And really, at the moment, Melbourne set up as a grid. We operate corridors. And in essence, we're expecting to see our busiest stops um, potentially change. And we don't quite know just yet uh, exactly what that's going to do. Um, and so we're working really closely looking at data, patronage patterns, mobility patterns, and then putting in step, things in step, things in place, I should say, um, in order to ensure that when the new tunnel comes online, in fact, we have, uh, we have all of the infrastructure ready um, for the tram, and so we can have that seamless connection between tram and train. For those of you who don't know, Melbourne's been rated the most livable city in the world for like seven years in a row or something. It's a phenomenal city to, to visit. 
I love all the different types of coffee you can get there. But the tram system downtown is free in the main central district. And it is a, it's a, a joy to ride it. So you guys do an amazing job there. It's, it's actually, it's, it's great for tourists. Um, yes. But as an operator, it's incredibly challenging because, in fact, people use it as basically an elevator and they go 100 meters on a tram <laughs> um, through the CBD. And so it can make it quite challenging to plan for. Um, and particularly as we look to the new channel coming online, uh, it's very difficult to understand exactly how people are going to use it. Thank you very much. So in the U.S., as in a lot of places around the world, during the pandemic, the federal government stepped up in a big way, thanks in large part to the work of APTA, and gave out three large tranches of funds uh, to public transit agencies to deal with the revenue loss, as Jeremy mentioned there, right? There was first the CARES Act and the CRISA Act, which helped some of the larger systems. And then there was a later act uh, a couple years ago, the ARPA Act, which helped pretty much everybody. But now that the pandemic is over, those funds are drying up. And, uh, and so a lot of transit agencies in the U.S. are facing what they're calling a fiscal cliff, which I think is a very great visual reference. We're going to have enough money until a certain spot. And then, boom, tell us what's happening in the U.S. Sure, I am I'm happy to discuss it both in terms of CTA and, and what we're facing, but also the industry as a whole. And uh, before I start, though, I just want to acknowledge that uh, I'm, Carl, I'm really looking forward to seeing your transit system. We'll be going to Australia uh, later this summer as part of an after mission study. And uh, uh, Melbourne is one of the most livable cities in the world. Well, I can't wait to eat with in Melbourne. Okay. So Looking I'll to make that you. point. Uh, do a plug for after. But, um, which is part of my job as chair. The fiscal cliff is a very real problem and challenge for our entire industry. When the pandemic hit, and the industry as a whole, we saw our ridership levels drop to 20% of normal. Um, I think today we're at about 70%. Uh, across the industry, but there's a lot of variability of that from agency to agency. As you pointed out, we were fortunate enough to get literally billions and billions of dollars in federal relief funds that have allowed us to maintain normal operations, even though our fare revenues had really pr pretty much dried up. And for our, our industry right now, over the course of the next several years, the agency is going to run out of that money. But as I indicated, as an industry, we're only back to 70% of our pre-pandemic ridership, which means there's a gap that we're all facing that we have to find some way to fill. Um, in CTA's case, um, by the end of 2025, we're facing a $500 million deficit. The good news is that the impact of the pandemic established a, a couple of very valid truths about public transportation. One, we are an essential service that is necessary to be maintained regardless of what's happening. And we all know that from the fact that all of us saw our transit system running when everything else is shut down. And the second is that the value that we add to the communities that we serve goes way beyond ridership. The economic development, the economic growth, the economic opportunities that come out of a robust public transportation system drive the overall economic vitality of the community as a whole. And those have really become the, the talking points in our country for the conversation that we're having right now about the increased subsidy that we need so that the cliff becomes something more like a ramp and gives us the time to really get back to normal. What do you think the likelihood is of that? Well, you know, in, in our country, it's a local decision. Operating funding is not paid for at the federal level for agencies by size. It's done at either the state or local level. And I think it's safe to say that every state and local level uh, is working through this issue. Um, I can tell you that in my state, there is definitely a recognition of the value of public transportation. 
But as, as is always the case, the devil's in the details. The question of where the money's going to come from to help us deal with this problem is still one that's being discussed. The good news is that we have a couple of years before we get there, which is the case for many of our systems. The bad news, though, is that the cliff is very real. And if we don't fix this, you are talking about a devastating level of service cuts because these are gaps that you can't close with fair increases alone. And you will see this, these systems devastated by the type of budget gaps we're talking about. Thank you for that, Paul. So, uh, Paul, I just want to add, you Dorval's uh, description here is very, very appropriate, and there are some daunting challenges out there for us. But I will say this. The other benefit to what's occurred here is that it has served and continuing to serve as a great catalyst for the industry for change and for innovation. And so coming here, being part of this summit, looking around at all of the solutions, potential solutions that exist uh, is inspiring. And I would commend all, all of you to take advantage of that. Uh, we'll be hosting our own uh, summit uh, in Orlando in just in October, but you can't help but come into this space, interact with the transit professionals that are here, have a discussion and not feel good about the future and the possibilities. And we are seeing, we're witnessing change across the U.S. system by system, whether it's redesigning their networks, introducing more technology, really being creative about how they're approaching the customer. Yeah, and I'm sure Paul wouldn't mind if I extend the invitation to all of you to come visit Aptas Expo in Orlando to see how things are done in the United States. It's a great, it's a once, how many, how many years, how many all? Every three years. So it's just a big one. There'll be, uh, you know, thousands, like, maybe not as big as this, but almost. And there'll be lots of exhibits, lots to learn there as well. So, Jeremy, can you unpack your operation a little bit for us? Tell us about what you operate, how it operates, and your focus on inclusivity. Yeah, so carrying six million journeys a day, uh, it's, it's good uh, as a uniform approach. But, you know, customizing uh, to cater to individual needs is difficult. And within our segment of what we carry... Uh, are those with uh, special needs, uh, vulnerable commuters. And so uh, we pay special attention to that. We ensure that uh, those with, uh, you know, who are hard of hearing, who are visually impaired, who have uh, dementia needs, uh, who, are, who suffer from autism, uh, they are not neglected and they are included in the public transport system because it, it does give them equal opportunity and access to uh, opportunity. So, so I think uh, we have developed uh, both the infrastructure uh, to facilitate that and many, um, in fact, all of our PT today is, is barrier-free. But I would, I would say that the uh, softer side of things, the hardware is important because that is uh, something that we are you know, training our commuters on. We are also training our PT workers on. Uh, because it's one thing to have the infrastructure. If nobody complies, then it's suboptimal, right? You can have barrier-free queue lines, but... You know, in a very urban city like Singapore, it's a very heavy ridership, right? So we are at 90%, which is good. We still have a gap, but it's not a 70% gap like Dovo, but still needs work. And operationally, we need everybody in the system. And uh, it takes us to especially design it, not just for the mass commute, but for those with special needs that we use. Our, we train our computers to do that. So they are the Tell untapped source. Tell us about source. that program. Yeah, so, so we put them through a course. We have almost 6,000 computers who are trained uh, online, and we deploy them. They are called our caring computing champions, right? So they are certified. They become the untapped resources in addition to the public transport workers out there. They are everyday commuters who are willing to lean forward. So we teach them the rules of engagement, 
how do you approach a people, a person with visual needs, hard of hearing, uh, you know, and, and all that. And then they feel equipped and we, we, we you know, help them on their way by facilitating some deployment. And so it's worked very well and we see that a lot more with special needs, sometimes even invisible needs, you know, have, have now uh, been included in the system. Uh, many of the needs going forward in an aging population like ours, uh, we'll see more and more of that. And so you need, you, we need more effort in that area. It's wonderful. I think uh, everyone knows, uh, I spent a lot of my career in paratransit. I, for five years, worked at Wamada, where Randy's at now, running their paratransit system uh, as a contractor. And I really believe the role of public transportation, it, obviously, it's even bigger in the lives of people who have special needs, who have some type of disability. So we have to make sure that we put our best foot forward and lend an extra helping hand. And that's what you're doing there. I think it's wonderful. The work is, if you haven't watched the episode of Transit Unplugged, give you not to push it, but I just want you to see that. See what they do visually. It is phenomenal. I haven't seen it anywhere else. What you do anywhere in the world. I visit a lot of places. You guys are amazing. Tell us some about what's happening in yard trams right now. Yeah, I think uh, what you're saying, Jeremy, is really interesting because we talk a lot about getting passengers back on board. But actually, uh, I don't think patronage will be the same as what it was. Actually, what we have to do is attract new passengers and attract people who previously weren't taking these trips. So it's, we can't keep targeting commuters because there is an acceptance of working from home. And so how do we attract new people or people who can't travel in order to get them on board to get the patronage levels up? And, and very much that's what we're focused on is creating the new trips for people. And so looking at those who may have accessibility needs and We've done an extensive program training all of our frontline staff and addressing hidden disabilities. And uh, we're doing a piece of work at the moment, uh, rolling out Neverlands, which has, uh, we saw actually on the Barcelona stops uh, when I was catching the Metro. Um, all of these little things and these one percenters will help shift the dial, but also will be really meaningful to the people who truly rely upon uh, public transport and have no other way to travel. Okay, I'm gonna ask a dual question to both of you. So um, other than revenue, I'll start with you, Paul. Can you give us just an overall state of the public transportation industry in the United States right now? What's happening? Where are we at? What are the trends? Well, you said a moment ago, you know, we don't want to keep talking about the pandemic. It's behind us. And in, and in fact, I think it's May 11th that our president declared the pandemic being over. The reality of it is it is over, but the lingering effects are with us, right? Yeah. And so you've heard that in the course of this conversation, attracting riders back to the system. Importantly, Touching on what Clara said here is looking for new riders uh, for the system is critically important. You know, when we were in Madrid, they shared the profile of their ridership and statistics with us. I was taken aback by seeing that their work trip accounts for about 29% of their ridership. Wow. And I thought, gee, the U.S. model, that work trip is at least double that. Now, on the one hand, we may have thought pre-pandemic, that's fantastic. Look at all the work trips that we're serving. However, it also says that we've got to get these systems for use of people all times, not just the work trip, leisure and recreational and weekends, which we're seeing really rise uh, higher in, in the state. So I think we're at this important place right now where the industry is changing. We're in this transition period, people trying to find their footing. What is the new reality? How do we serve that new reality? Can we be aggressive enough to attract new riders? We're optimistic it can be because there's a lot of new investment coming in the states with the infrastructure bill that was passed a year and a half ago. So that's really the crux of what's happening right now. That's great. What are your thoughts on it? You, you know, I, I would agree with everything that Paul said. And I think that what we're in right now is an era of innovation. There's an opportunity to really rethink 
the way in which we provide public transportation. And for many of us, the, the silver lining and the emergency relief money that we received is that is allowing us to really try out and pilot some ideas that we might not have done otherwise. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on around fair policy on how to make connections easier between various modes of transportation. There's a lot of work going on around technology and trying to seamlessly integrate public transportation with other mobility options. Uh, there's a lot of work around microtransit uh, and creating you know, some unique forms of transportation that beat a different need or demand than what we traditionally looked at as our role in the public transportation system. And so I think at the end of the day, what's the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? I think that at the end of the day, we're going to come out stronger, healthier, more creative, and ultimately more viable going forward because of what we're having to go through right now to figure out how to really provide the best transportation experience to our customers. Adorable, do you feel like, uh, from your perspective, really the context in which public transportation operates has changed for the better, that we really are now being seen as an essential service uh, as like schools, parks, and other things like that. So the government agencies are saying, okay, uh, we're going to kind of elevate the view of what you do. Yeah, and I, and I think that the, the, the place where that voice is being heard the loudest is in the business community. Employers want their employees to have options to get to, to work. Uh, even, even with the new work-at-home realities, there's still a very uh, lucrative opportunity to recruit and retain talent by providing them urban environments where they have transportation opportunities. So the mobility, uh, the mobility and access issue is playing a vital role in how businesses are looking at communities. Elected officials hear that and recognize that, and that really has been a sustainable part of our overall political strategy for how we need to get and how we will ultimately, I believe, get the funding that is necessary to keep us operating at the correct levels. Thank you for that. I think we saw a good summary of the state of the industry right now across the world. Now we're going to shift our focus to technology. Jeremy, you have one of the most advanced technological systems in the world. I'm looking for the future, though. So you've got a lot of technology in place right now. Let's look one to three years into the future for the LTA. What type of technology do you think will most impact your operations there for good? Well, I think in the area of artificial intelligence, not just chat GPT, which I you know, everyone is talking about, but really in the area of operations and maintenance, uh, because these are uh, ability to develop sensors that uh, tell you the state of the condition of the operating assets. Uh, we sit on a very big base of assets because we basically own all of the assets. So there's about 80 billion worth of assets that we sit on. And so it, it, it behooves us to be able to have a system to monitor the asset health. Uh, and uh, artificial intelligence helps us to do that. Sensors helps us to do that, to put together the data, to give you a forward view of what's happening to the assets so that you can time your purchase, you don't sweat your assets. The good thing about coming out of the pandemic is really uh, that we can actively shape the demand, right? So, so with more data out there, we can tailor the offering so that we don't have to sweat the assets going into, let's say, the central business district. It allows more evenly spread. Travel is more local. Uh, Paul was talking about the opportunities. Uh, so we really have opportunities to shape the demand. Right, uh, and adapt our offerings to that. So uh, technology allows us to do that. The other one is, of course, autonomous driving. Right. So we we are also in that area as most cities are. Uh, but it gives us an opportunity to uh, not just in the final state of uh, level five autonomy, where you take away the driver, 
uh, which which we need to transit to because we will have union issues and all that about the current drivers and their plight. Uh, but it is also about assisted driving. What can AV do in the meantime to make the job of the driver easier in assisting him to drive? I think those are the transition milestones that really can enhance uh, the industry, you know, and give uh, some career development aspects to, to drivers, you know, and attract them back to the force. That's interesting. Well, can I ask you a specific question? Where he brought it up, and feel free to tag in on it. And that is, where are we at on mobility as a service? Remember prior to the pandemic, it was the big, you know, zeitgeist moment for mass, you know? Remember, it started with the WIM app and, uh, you know, in the Netherlands, I think it was, and, it, and everyone was talking about it. And then during the pandemic, it kind of went down. And, and I was talking to a guy from one of the biggest mass companies in the world the other day, and he said, mass is dead, long live new mass. A new approach to that. So that, 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 that's a pretty good approach. What's, what's going on with mass now? Well, you're exactly right, Paul, that certainly before the pandemic, that was the dialogue almost every single day. In fact, we led a study mission across Europe uh, and into the Netherlands just on that topic. I don't think it's that if you think about it in the broader context. And this is what I think is the discussion and some of the actions going on in the U.S. in particular, that is thinking of themselves and their communities as a mobility provider and integrator, not simply the bus company or the train company. And I think more and more that's not left us. Those notions are with us. They're in the actions that the agencies are taking. So we may not refer to it every single day, but the agencies and operators have adopted that thinking already, and that's already moving forward. If I could just add one comment to what you asked a moment ago about technology, I think I agree with what's been touched on here, this generative AI. We convened a seminar for our agency CEOs just two weeks ago, and it was an eye-opener in terms of the implications of AI, what it can mean. One area that we didn't touch on, which I think holds great potential, and this is the issue of project delivery. I mean, one of the focuses in the U.S. is, and this perhaps reveals a weakness, hey, can you guys build these lines cheaper and build them faster than what it takes to deliver a new metro or a new light rail extension? And I think AI, again, with the data analytics that the Dorval talked about, really, if we're smart, we're going to look at that and help us design our plan and implement our plan much quicker and with, uh, with an eye towards budgets uh, that perhaps we haven't gotten totally a handle on in the past. Yeah, I would agree with, with Paul. I don't think mobility as a service is dead. I think mobility as a service is evolving. And the truth of the matter is, is it is evolving right along with the public transportation industry as we start to understand what the new normal is going to be and ultimately how we can best serve that new normal going forward. So to me, it's become one of a number of tools that we need to look at and we need to integrate into our mobility ecosystem that allows us to effectively deliver what the customers want. Thank you for that. That's really good insight on in how AI can help us. Jeremy, let's talk about contracting for a minute. You're one of the transit agencies who do it right, in my opinion, uh, and value your, the contractors, your partners who work with you to provide that service and work very closely with them to deliver top-level service. When I was there, uh, I got to meet with the general manager of Go Ahead in Singapore, who operates, I think, 450 of your buses. Talk to us about that model sum and how that's working. Yeah, so in Singapore, we divide up the bus market to make it uh, contestable into several packages, uh, 14 packages, and we put out a contract. And uh, it's basically, if you understand the concept of gross cost, so basically we pay for the running of the service uh, and the operators. Actually, because we own the assets, we own the garages and depots, very much uh, 
you know, the operators just show up and operate and maintain the assets. So that's worked out quite well. Uh, uh, you know, it's a good contestable framework. Um, you know, we put out packages for, for competitive tender and we have a strong, rather than it being very transactional with the contractors, which was the point you were trying to make, we, we have a very good partnership relationship because we are vested in each other's success. Yeah, sure. Legally, contractually, there are terms that we need to, to ink and commit to. But the larger picture is that we are both vested in developing the public transport ecosystem. I can't do without them because they are the end service providers, you know. And so we always try to find the alignment, you know, and uh, we sit down, we look at challenges, we solve them together. And Andy was the one that we were referring to at Bow Ahead. And so we, we have invited foreign operators who brought a lot of expertise to Singapore, challenged the encompass, and now the overall service has gone up. Yeah, so we're very happy with that, and it's, it's worked out really well. So two more questions. Uh, this one is a future question, future looking. I'm going to ask you where you see your service going in the future, et cetera. And then we'll ask you, what is good happening right here today? What's the best thing happening in your system today? So let's look at the future, and then we'll come back to the present. I'd like to start with you, Jeremy. You have so many great plans. You're building uh, and growing your line so quickly. Tell us about what's coming for the LTA in the next few years. Besides the expansion of the public transport network, which I feel most cities are embarking on and not holding back, I think the other parts is, uh, you know, as you talked about Melbourne and, you know, being a livable city, how can a previously car-centric city like Singapore uh, become more walkable and bikeable? So recently we found very strong peers in, in, in Seoul. So we, I was in Seoul together with the Seoul Metropolitan Government. We inked a memorandum of understanding on transport areas such as, you know, pedestrian priority zones. How do you make green zones, right? How do you, uh, uh, you know, make cities more walkable and bikeable? And how do you repurpose road space? You know, a lot of uh, our roads are built with five, uh, you know, lanes, dual five lanes, six lanes. How do you take away those lanes and give it back to the city? How do you uh, allow there to be more dedicated bike lanes and all that? So that, that process, I call it tactical urbanism. You're aware of that. that tactical term, right? urbanism. That's a great yeah, term. So, so that is something that we need to pivot and quickly adapt to and uh, experiment with and then lock in the gains, right? And, and uh, it doesn't take for us to dwell on it forever. If it doesn't work, we move on. But these are the areas we're looking at. So, you know, we are, we are endeavoring to make uh, Singapore full of friendly streets, we call them. So these are streets where uh, cars only travel at 20 to 30 kilometers per hour. Lots of areas are pedestrianized, you know, uh, and so it's more walkable and it's safe, right? And that's how our towns and the cities should be. They shouldn't be, you know, zones where we have poor air quality and high, high car use. So that's something that uh, we are preoccupied with and keeps us away. How about at Yard Trans? What are your plans for the future? I feel like Jeremy just stole my answer to what he said. Uh, but I would also, I'd also add um, that I think the expectations of passengers have really changed. So their appetite for disruption and for a subpar experience have really reduced. And so really our goal has to be getting it perfect every time and making sure they have a really good experience. And so that is from every touch point along the journey, from the pre-planning to on the uh, on the tram through to after afterwards, and that's a really challenging piece um, to work through because there's so many different variables. Some are in our control and some aren't. But I think that's that's definitely going to be a place where we're going to spend a lot of effort and put a, a lot of time in in order to not only raise uh, the number of people on trams, but also making sure that people come back time and time again. 
You may not know this, but public transportation in the U.S., rail transportation, really started in Chicago in the 1892 World's Fair. Uh, it, it, and now they have an amazing system called the L, which is elevated trains. And it's really one of the amazing legacy transit systems in the U.S. If you've never had a chance to ride it, I encourage you. It's so fun. I just love rail. It's fun. So, but tell us what you have planned for the future. You've got a great sure. past. Let's talk about what's going on in the future. Let me answer both the questions. I think you're absolutely right. The, the L is a, is a iconic 125-year-old system that uh, uh, if you ever get a chance to ride it, I would encourage you to do so. We obviously have some major rail projects that are underway that over the next few years. Uh, we have a, a modernization project, which is a state of code repair project. Uh, that we'll be completing in a couple of years. That's a $2.1 billion project. We also have an extension of one of our lines, uh, the red line, which will be uh, funded in the very near future. And that's a almost $3 billion uh, project that's going to really, in some ways, complete our rail network to cover all uh, portions of the city uh, all the way to the border and beyond. But the future, if you were to ask me right now, the future is bus. I love that. Both in, terms I of, both in terms of electrification, which is something that if, I, if there's one thing that I've heard since I got over here over in the past week, everybody's talking electrification. Uh, the second is, as we deal with the new normal and we talk about the flexibility that we need to meet the, the future needs of our communities, bus is going to be the target for that. So whether it's new dedicated bus lanes, whether it's bus rapid transit, or whether it's... Um, uh, the ongoing electrification of your bus system, I think you're going to see a lot of activity on our bus side of the house, uh, even more so than on the rail side. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited about what we're going to be able to do in Chicago in that area. And I'm looking forward to a complete, complete revamped bus network that's going to be reflective of what we're seeing the travel patterns look like today, which are very different than what they were three years ago. All right. That's a great answer. And actually, I lied. I'm going to do two more questions because you just made me think of something that I'd like to hear everybody talk about, and that is sustainability and the role of public transportation sustainability. In the U.S., you know, I mentioned prior to COVID, the, the zeitgeist moment was mass. Right now, if you had to ask me, based on who I'm here, and I want to hear what you have to say about this, Paul, it's hydrogen-powered buses. That is the zeitgeist moment right now in the U.S. Everybody's been moving toward battery electric. And of course, hydrogen buses, you go over and look at them, they do have batteries in them. They're just getting their source not from the grid. They're getting their power from hydrogen, and only water comes out the tailpipe. Paul, what are your thoughts on the role of public transit and sustainability? Any comments you have on just overall what's happening there? Well, certainly, I think uh, what Global shared with you, I totally agree with. Just quickly, on the issue of sustainability and electrification, which we saw quite a bit you know, this past week traveling around Spain, every public transport provider is really pushing very hard advancing electric buses, electric battery buses. At the same time, they're deploying and experimenting with hydrogen fuel buses. I think that is the trend that's already begun in the U.S. and that will continue because most are hedging their bets. They're saying it looks like it's electric battery. That's the ultimate winner, but we're not 100% sure. We want to make sure that we're looking at all the possibilities. I think that's how it's going to go over the next five years before that settles out. But what I will say, though, is I think we're in a, just a really advantageous spot. I'm going to talk U.S.-centric now, and that is people are recognizing the power of public transportation and how it can address so many of our societal issues, not only the issue of mobility, not only addressing climate, but addressing, addressing equity and knowing that we've got to provide services and a network of services in public transport that meets the needs of people 
doesn't exclude people, really provides for opportunity to grow the economy and make sure that people can lead meaningful lives. That's becoming clear and clear every day in the states. And I think it's an opportunity for us as public transport to capitalize on that. Absolutely. We need to stake our claim on that and, uh, and see that as the new normal for what public transportation means to our communities. Jeremy, I know you have a great commitment to sustainability. Talk to us about that. Yeah, the good news for us is, uh, you know, we have uh, our emissions have peaked from the transport side of the house. So power, power industry were the heaviest uh, emitters. We are third in the list and we peaked in 2016. So it's on the way down, but we're sparing no effort because uh, I think the two key plagues, uh, two key levers are ready to get a uh, walk cycle ride, a mode share really high up there, nine in 10 journeys by 2040. Uh, that's one of our key strategies. The second being electrification of the, of the fleet. And uh, I think we're we pushing quite hard. The LTA has taken over the, the what we call electric vehicle charging framework. So we partner with the private industry to put out charges. Uh, 60,000 of them will be out there. So private cars, uh, we're moving them aggressively. Now about 30% of new registrations are EV already and uh, 42% are hybrid. So we're on our way. And so on the public transport side of the house, uh, by 2030, 50% of our bus fleet will be electric. But as Paul says, I think, and Bobo says, I think we need to look at picking the winners, right? You want some resilience in your system. So putting every all your eggs in one basket as far as electricity right, and the grid is concerned is, is not a wise decision. So we still have our 40% of cleaner energy, diesel hybrids, but we're looking at hydrogen. But at the moment where, where we stand in Singapore, we don't see the the infrastructure and the ecosystem for green hydrogen are, are very mature. It's still quite nascent. And so it's, it's, it's very at, at its experimental stage. Uh, are there any other type of energy sources you're looking at? Primarily electricity and uh, electrical and, and looking at hydrogen. Yeah. Okay, very good. How about a Yara trams? Trams are, trams are very good because we are yeah. all, all electric. electric. Yeah. Uh, how, what I would comment on is that uh, from, from our perspective, um, we have also installed solar panels on all of our depots and so that we are operating um, not only in the trams um, from a sustainable perspective, but also in the way that we operate our business. And uh, one of the things that we're currently exploring is, in fact, putting um, basically what we call in neighbourhood batteries, um, whereby we can look to power, um, uh, you know, areas or communities around um, the depots in order to provide sustainable energy to those, um, to those communities as well. Last question is going to be fun. Most of you know that uh, a public transportation CEO is kind of like a mayor almost of a city. There's so much that goes into that job. And oftentimes, all the easy decisions have already been made at the lower levels of staff. It's only the tough decisions that make it to their desk, that the ones that are politically fraught, you know, dynamite, so to speak. Uh, and a lot of times, the only time you get to see them on the news is when there's bad news that they're responding to, a derailment, a strike, or funding issues or whatever. So what do I like to do on Transit Unplugged is give CEOs the opportunity to talk about the good things that are happening because there's so many good things that are happening. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start down with you at the end. We'll move this way. Tell us about one of the most exciting, great, fun things that are happening right now at Yard Trams. It's a lot. But the first thing that comes to mind for me is probably the work we've done with our driver workforce. Um, we have significantly changed the demographic of our workforce over the last five years such that now we have um, the highest ever levels of female participation and, and that's been the result of introducing part-time employment for drivers, 
but also improving the safety and security of our drivers and giving them facilities that are important to them. So from an engagement and retention, obviously they're two really big issues that I think are facing the industry. I, I think we're, we're doing really well on and, and I'm really proud of the work the team's done. There's a lot of work going on all across Australia. I know I'm making sure women get more involved, especially in the operator jobs and some other jobs that have traditionally been male. So that's wonderful. Absolutely. And I think, you know, from our perspective, we've got our depot managers, um, 50% of them are are female. We have in our driver ranks 30% uh, right through to our maintainers and our infrastructure uh, typically uh, have been jobs held by males. And that just simply isn't just attracting women and hiring women. It's actually about getting them to stay. And you want to create the environment and the culture and the, to make it a safe place, but and also one that they want to work with and bring their friends with them. Thank you very much. And thank you for being on the panel today. Jeremy, tell us about one of the most exciting things happening at the LTA right now. For me, it's really the expansion of our real network. I think Dovo talked about, you know, rail being the future. And indeed it is. Uh, so, you know, with uh, another 100 kilometers to go. So we are 260 kilometers. You were there when we are opening a Thompson East Coast line that new stage three and uh, takes you all the way from Malaysia where we run a, we are about to run with our neighbors an RTS link that takes us from Johor Bahru down to Singapore and you can hit Marina Bay. And uh, from there you can go to the airport as well. So, so these are exciting times because real really unlocks the land parcels around them in terms of catchment, in terms of- Love that, it Giving the opportunities, right? So, so uh, exciting. So this year is a little bit barren for us because we opened one stage last year, but next year we have two stage openings and we are really excited about expanding the rail network because uh, it is really bringing opportunities and joy to commuters with more opportunities, more options uh, to travel. And that really is a focus in Singapore, joy. Talk about just a little bit about that. I've, I really found that interesting as a city that you're focused on now. Yeah, it's about delightful journeys, right? It's about having joyful trips. So we, feed, we focus on the experience and the experience doesn't just come from good infrastructure. It comes from the general well-being of fellow other commuters who travel. So the behavioral, the travel behavior of fellow commuters is important. So we try and put out messages to make, make yourself uh, special to someone, right? Uh, make their day, lean forward to help those with special needs. So that's the general message. And we think that if you make transit uh, such a pleasurable experience, I think you'll grow your vote share in no time. Absolutely. That's a big focus now of the, of the effort, Paul, isn't it, with customer experience, customer service. We're seeing that all over. Tell us about exciting things happening in the U.S. right now. What's the, one of the coolest things? Well, Paul, I'll tell you, the, the thing that I really value the most is this great privilege that I and our team have at APTA, and that is to be able to travel around the country in the course of our meetings and conferences on occasion to come overseas and see what's happening in other places and to be inspired by what we see, the dedication of the people that are there, the new innovations that are going on. That gives us energy as we come back to the States, share that information with our members and also share the experiences that they're having that we need to communicate. You know, the old saying is, if no one else is talking about it, you need to talk about it. And people need to know that there's a lot of innovation going on in our industry. It's not the old stodgy industry that existed decades ago. It's a very technology-focused, advanced-thinking industry. And that's what's going to carry us forward over the next couple of decades. Awesome. Thank you. What an optimistic view. Thank you. All right, Dorval, what's one of the most cool things happening at CTA? Let me me wrap this thing up. First of all, um, uh, I want to really import some of Jeremy's philosophies over to CTA because having a joyful trip would be a wonderful 
uh, goal uh, for all of us to have in, in Chicago. But we're, what I am most proud of is the opportunity that we have had to leverage the historic infrastructure bill that we have received in the United States and use it to really promote and amplify the equity objectives of public transportation in my agency. Um, I am very focused on creating opportunities for disadvantaged communities, for disadvantaged individuals, uh, for minority and women-owned businesses, and using the federal dollars that I'm, I have received, it has allowed me to really accelerate the opportunities to create what we refer to as sustainable and generational wealth in communities that have historically been the subject of disinvestment, which is one of the side benefits of having public transportation in your community. So uh, we are leading the effort in a lot of areas on that regard with my uh, procurement policies and other things that I'm excited about what we've done and what we're going to be doing over the next several years in that area. Very good. Thank you all very much for a great overview of the global perspective on public transportation. What a great panel, huh? Thank you all for being with us today. Enjoy the rest of uh, your conference. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of Transit Unplugged with our CEO Roundtable recorded live at the UITP Global Summit in Barcelona. I want to thank our guests, Paul Scatellis, Dorval Carter, Carla Purcell, and Jeremy Yap. Now, coming up next week on the show, we have John Slott, Chief Innovation Officer at Lynx in Florida. And in our leadership segment, we have Rudy Vidal, who helps companies become more engaged with their customers and employees by focusing on customer experience. If you're listening to Transit Unplugged in your favorite podcast app, make sure you follow us, rate, and review us. That helps other people find Transit Unplugged and become loyal listeners. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, you can email us at info at transitunplugged.com. Transit Unplugged is brought to you by Medaxo. At Medaxo, we're passionate about moving the world's people. And at Transit Unplugged, we're passionate about telling those stories. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.